Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Psalm, chapter 119, verses 105 to 112. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. I am severely afflicted. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. Accept my free will offerings of praise, O Lord, and teach me your rules. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. The wicked have laid a snare for me, but I do not stray from your precepts. Your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. This is the word of God. It is very good to be with you all on this post-Christmas Sunday and to be together just as we roll into the end of this year. So as a church on Sundays, normally what we do is we read and we preach through books of the Bible, section by section. It's what's called consecutive expository preaching. We recently just did that with the Gospel of John. But sometimes we will take a break from walking consecutively through a book of the Bible and we'll do something else. And so normally, for instance, at the end of the year, we'll focus on the coming of Christ for the, during the weeks of Advent. And then at the very end of the year, right before the year ends or right at the beginning of the year, we'll, we'll take time to look at a passage of the scriptures that hopefully will help us in a particular way to reflect on the year behind us, and prepare for the year ahead. So today, that's what we're going to do. We're looking at Psalm 119, verses 105 to 112. Psalm 119, 105 to 112. And if you have a Bible, I invite you to open to that, to that chapter. It's, it's almost right in the middle of your Bible. That is, if you're still in the Stone Ages and use one of these, an actual paper Bible like I do. And here's why we're going to be looking at this passage. Two reasons. One, the start of the new year is an opportunity to reevaluate, to reevaluate different areas of our lives and, and where necessary, even recalibrate. The new year is not a reset button as much as we might hope it were, but it is a chance to reflect, isn't it? And one area worth reflecting on is this. I'm going to state it in the form of a question. How have I related to God's word over the past year? And how will I relate to God's word in the months ahead? Those are the questions we want to ask as we evaluate and where necessary, recalibrate our relationship to God's word. The second reason we're looking at this passage is because if 2021 is anything like 2020, we've got some major challenges ahead of us. So we need to know how does God's word uniquely equip us to face those challenges and to navigate the days ahead. I really, really love Christmas music a lot. In fact, I haven't been listening to it since uh, Christmas, and, and I miss it already. I love the old hymns and carols, and I also like just some of those, those, those holiday classics of American popular culture. 
that I heard a lot growing up, and I still love listening to them. So in our home, once Thanksgiving has passed, we, and my, my kids can attest to this, we start listening to the voices of Nat King Cole and Bing Crosby and Ella Fitzgerald. And if you don't know who those people are, I'm sorry for that. I'll pray for you. It's, it's probably an indication that you weren't discipled very well, I think. Or I'm just kidding. You, you probably are just not old. Or maybe you just have different tastes, and it's okay. But I love those songs. And one holiday song that's an oldie that, that, that I really love is Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas. Do you know this one? It has a melancholy feel to it, and, and it feels especially appropriate this year. And there's a line in that song that goes, Someday soon we all will be together, if the fates allow. Until then, we'll have to muddle through somehow. Well, God willing, someday soon we will all be together as a church, as families, with your work colleagues, and with everyone else in your life that you haven't seen for the past nine months. But not if the fates allow, whatever that means, but if our sovereign God allows. But until then, we don't have to muddle through somehow. As much as I love the song, it's simply not true. We don't have to muddle through. We might, but if we do, it's because we're not taking advantage of the resources that God has given us. We don't need to muddle through because we can walk into the coming months with a humble sense of clarity and peace and security because the God of the universe has provided us trustworthy, infallible words that are here to guide us. And Psalm 119 is about that. Psalm 119 is God's word telling us about God's word. It was written by a God-fearing man named David, who's the king of Israel for parts of the 11th and 10th century BC. God not only chose David to be king, you can read about that in 1 Samuel 16, but he also spoke through David. That is, the Holy Spirit of God moved and empowered the king to write words that, on the one hand, were poetry and song that were born out of his own life as a young shepherd who became a king. But these words aren't just songs and poetry born out of his own life. They're also inspired by God himself. And so the Psalms, they reveal the depths of human experience and emotion. And they reveal the character and purposes of the Creator. In fact, many Psalms, they prophesied and that is, they, they foretold and foreshadowed people and events that would not appear until centuries later. So, so these are God's words but they show us what it looks like when someone submits their life to those words. Psalm 119 also happens to be the longest chapter in the whole Bible. It's 176 verses. If we were to read through it, it would probably take around 15 or so minutes if you we were just to read straight through it right now at a, at a steady pace. We're not going to do that. And of those 176 verses, 171 of those verses refer directly or indirectly to God's words. So most of the psalm is reflecting on itself in a sense, but also reflecting on the whole of the scriptures. 
His law, God's precepts, God's rules, God's testimonies. Those are all words that David uses in this psalm to talk about God's word. This, this uh, psalm is also an acrostic poem, which means that, um, well, there are, there are 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And this psalm is arranged in such a way that, that each block of eight verses begins with another letter of the alphabet. So each block of eight verses begins with the same letter of the alphabet, and those blocks run alphabetically, one through 22, if that makes sense. It's very simple, but I feel like I didn't explain that very well. But let's look at what this passage, more importantly than the fact that it's an acrostic poem, what does it tell us about God's word? Well, we're going to start really basic. Verse 1, I mean, verse 105, tells us that it is God's word. That is, it is his word. David says, your word. He doesn't say the word. He says your word. And the your he's referring to is Yahweh, the God of Israel, the God of the universe. Now, that's a basic idea just to say, well, it's God's word. Yeah, but it's vital and it's a good place for us to start because everything else we're going to see about this word is rooted here. David is not talking to a far off deity He's speaking to the God who made him, who chose him, and who cares deeply for him. So that when David speaks of these precepts and these rules and these statutes, these are not sterile laws that impersonally govern the universe. These are not just cold facts that David has no choice but to surrender himself to. No, these precepts, these rules, these words, they are wisdom from an all-knowing, almighty God who loves David like a son, who actually views him as a son. And that makes all the difference. The fact that these are not just wise words, important words, true words. No, these are your words, O Lord, my God's words. My older sons and I just finished watching the second season of The Mandalorian. For those of you who don't know, it's a, it's a Disney show. It's set in the Star Wars universe. If you want to know more, you can ask my son, Marcelo, because he is our family resident expert on Star Wars. But in that show, a group of people called The Mandalorians, they live by a code. Really, really it's a religious creed. It's a set of unbending rules that they must abide by as a people. And when one of them calls the rest of the Mandalorians to follow that code, they'll say, this is the way. And the rest of the people will repeat, this is the way. And that settles it. It's what we must do. If it's what the Mandalorian creed calls for, then this is the way we do it. No questions asked. And, it, and, and they submit to it. But there's something cold and, and even arbitrary about these codes. You, you find yourself wondering, well, who, who, where did these rules come from? And why do they even exist? The Mandalorians can't take off their helmets, ever. You wonder why. It seems silly. It's not even hygienic. It seems unhealthy. It all feels eerily like a, like a cult or like a, a strictly fundamentalist religion that says, no questions, no discussion, here's the law, 
do it. Even though none of us can tell you why you should do it. I wonder if you ever think about God's word that way. Like it's a set of arbitrary demands that require unquestioning obedience. Even blind obedience without any understanding. Is that the way you think about what God tells you in his word? Throughout Psalm 119, David is talking to a person, to a relational God who knows him intimately and who loves him forever. And David knows he can depend on that. He says in verse 6 of Psalm 119, Let your steadfast love comfort me according to your promise to your servant. Your words to me are personal. They are words for your servant, and they speak of your steadfast love for me. In verse 88, in your steadfast love, give me life. And it's because David knows this about God that he can trust God's words. But he only knows this about God because God has revealed it in his words. This is not a cold, sterile code for living. It's God revealing himself to his people so that his people will see him and know him and love him and be loved and experience peace, joy, eternal life. You see, the more intimately you know God, the more you will value his word. And the way to know him more intimately is through exposure to his word. So you see, it's, it's self-perpetuating. It's cyclical. His word reveals his character, who he really is, his heart. In a language that we can understand. Martin Luther said that when God speaks to us in the scriptures, he's speaking baby talk. And what, what he meant was that God humbles himself to speak in a language that meets us where we're at. And the very fact that God would do that tells us something about him, that he would humble himself in that way for us so that we would know him, so that we would know truth, so we would know what life is all about. So we need to remember that if we're going to cherish anything that God has to say to us, If we look at these scriptures as just a cold, sterile set of rules, facts, or even wise words, we're not going to love this word. We're not going to want to relate to it in a healthy way. But if we know that these are the words of God, our God, for us, that changes everything. What else does Psalm 119 tell us about God's word? Yes, it is his word. It's your word, O God. But it also tells us that it's a unified word. Unified. That means that it's internally consistent. Notice that throughout here, David does mention statutes and rules and precepts and testimonies. But when he uses the word word, it's always singular. Word. And what he's saying is that, it's, it's really very important. What he's saying is that if you take all of these rules and precepts and promises and laws that make up the word of God, all of it, you end up with just simply one word. That it is, it, is, it is one communication. It is one message. It is unified. It means that it is internally, the whole scriptures are internally consistent. You and I are not always consistent in what we say. 
Sometimes I'll tell my kids something and they say, that's not what you said last week. And I'll say, yes, it is. And then they all tell me it's not what I said. And I start to, I start to question myself. I don't know if they're gaslighting me or what, but I'm like, maybe, maybe I did say something different last week. Usually, Delimar will confirm that I did, in fact, say something different last week. This word is internally consistent. That's why we can call it the word, his word. It also means that this book contains one grand overarching narrative. One narrative. And, you can, and it's a rich narrative. And it's the greatest narrative ever told. And you can approach that narrative because it's so rich and because it's so multifaceted. You can approach it from different angles and look at it differently. But here's one way to capture the entire narrative of the scriptures. It's the story of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration or renewal. Creation followed by a perfect creation, followed by a fall into sin, followed by redemption enacted by God through Christ leading to final Restoration of all things, or renewal of all things. Another way to look at the narrative of the whole scriptures, some theologians have characterized it as the story of the kingdom of God. From Genesis to Revelation, what you're reading about is the, the kingdom of God as it goes through different uh, periods until it's fully culminated And we come to the end of this book. Another way to think about the Bible is it's the unfolding plan of God. His plan from beginning. And there are other ways for us to look at this. We don't have time to think about all the many ways that we can look at this one narrative. But what I want us to see is that it is a single narrative. We learn about the Bible sometimes um, as if it's made up of disjointed pieces. Because, of course, it was written by many different authors. You've got many different books here. You've got books written in different epochs. You have different genres from poetry, like we're reading today, to historical narrative, to prophecy, to apocalyptic literature, to letters, epistles. The more you read this book, though, I, I, I assure you that the more you read this book, rather than seeing it, as dis, more and more disjointed, the more you will come to observe that there is one dominating narrative, one dominating message that starts in Genesis and runs through to Revelation. And the fact that it was written by so many different authors over so many uh, centuries and in so many different genres simply points to the amazing nature, the, the amazing character. speaks to us through this book. Some have said that the message of this book can be boiled down to words that appear in the book of Jonah. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. The whole of scriptures, if you look at it from creation, fall, redemption, and renewal, from that, through that uh, lens, for instance, you'll see that it's all about the fact that people created by God, a world created by God needs a savior, and that salvation can only come from God himself, and it comes in the person of Jesus Christ. And so another way to look at the unity of this Bible 
It's, it's not just that it's one story with one point. You could also say it's all about one person. It's all about the person of Jesus Christ. In fact, Jesus himself said in John 5, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it's they that bear witness about me. All of the scriptures, he say, they bear witness to me. They talk about Jesus. And what do they tell us about him? They tell us that he is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, who came into this world in the flesh. He took on skin and bones in order to live life as a human, a man like me and you. But unlike me and you, he didn't live this life inconsistently. He lived this life with perfect, consistent obedience to God the Father, something we failed to do from the get-go. And even though he lived with perfect obedience, he was willing to die as a substitutionary sacrifice for us. To pay for all of our inconsistencies. To pay for all the ways we have ignored God's word. Rejected God's word. He died and on the third day he rose again. Thereby proving that he had paid the penalty for our sins in full. And now, as Brian just taught us a moment ago, the risen king sits at the right hand of the Father. And one day he'll return. And he'll call all his people, all those who have believed in him, to himself to experience life in a renewed, restored world where there is no sin. The whole of the Bible tells that story and points to that one man Jesus Christ, and says, salvation belongs to him. Now, it's because God's word is from him, from God, and because it's unified, consistent, inwardly, that's why we can trust it. And we can trust God's word to do everything that David says it does here. What does David say God's word can do? Well, in verse 105, he says God's word guides us. It's a lamp and a light to our feet. God's word can be trusted to guide us. Now, it doesn't mean that it's always going to guide us into comfortable places. There's a kind of prosperity gospel way of reading this and saying, well, if I believe God's word and I follow God's word, I'm going to constantly enjoy comfort. Not necessarily, and we'll see that that's not the case. For David, it certainly wasn't. But it will guide us, nevertheless. What will it guide us to? How will it guide us? Well, verse 106 shows us that it will guide us into righteousness. What does he say in verse 106? I have sworn an oath and confirmed it to keep your righteous rules. The word of God can be trusted to be righteous. And so as we obey it, we are living righteously. As we follow it, we're living righteously. And not only that, but as we follow it, it's going to lead us to Jesus. Remember, he's a point. And in Jesus, what do we find? We find the perfect righteousness of God. Righteousness that we can never muster up in and of ourselves. And so as we obey God's word, as we follow it, it helps us to live righteously. It also shows us how we failed to live righteously. And it points us to the righteous Savior who died for us 
to make us righteous. Verse 107 tells us that this word can be trusted to lead us to life. I am severely afflicted, says David. Give me life, O Lord, according to your word. He's saying life will come according to your word. You have shown me how I can get life here. Deliver on your promises, Lord. Do it, David says. Now, of course, that doesn't mean, as we said before, that if we follow God's word, it's always going to lead us into comfortable places. It doesn't, because look at what David also says in that same verse. 107, I'm severely afflicted. I'm severely afflicted. But it's in the midst of the affliction that God's word guides into righteousness, leads to life. And verse 109 tells us that God's word protects us too. Protects us, even in the midst of affliction. Look at what David says. I hold my life in my hand continually, but I do not forget your law. That's not language we use very often. What David means there, at least most people seem to think, that what he means there when he says, I hold my life in my hands, is that his life is exposed. It's vulnerable. It's like if you're walking through a busy, uh, crowded city street and you're holding a fishbowl, filled to the top with a goldfish in it and it's glass and you're worried because at any moment you could easily get jostled and that thing will shatter and you'll lose that fish. He says, I'm going through life with my life exposed. I'm so vulnerable. I can be attacked at so many points. But he says, nevertheless, I'm trusting in you. I'm trusting in you. I don't forget what your law has called me to. He says in verse 110, the wicked have laid a snare for me, but I don't stray from your precepts. I stay on course. Even with my life in my hands, vulnerable, I stay on course. What does it mean that we can look to God for protection in his word when we are severely afflicted? What does it mean that we can look for protection in God's word when enemies lay a snare for us? Fact is that God's word protects us, first of all, from self-destruction, from the snares that we ourselves, we can be our own worst enemies, the snares that we lay. Proverbs 14.12 and 16.25 say that there's a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. Sometimes we think we're on the right path, but it's obviously leading. God sees it. It's obviously leading to destruction. God's word is there to protect us from that. But it's also there to protect us from the snares that others lay, the traps that others lay. Now you might think, Who, no one's laying traps for me. I don't have many enemies. You all are nice people. I don't have too many enemies, I guess. The fact is that some of these snares are laid unintentionally but they are nevertheless wicked, even though unintentional. Think about the snares that are laid for you. Think about the ways that this world in which you live communicates to you lies. That if you give into and if you follow, will lead into a trap and maybe even to death. Think about the values that this world teaches you to uphold. The competing values that our culture calls us to uphold. Think about the goals 
that, this, that our culture sometimes calls us to pursue, are they always healthy goals? Success, wealth, autonomy, popularity. Think about what this culture tells you about your identity, who you are, where your identity lies. Can you always trust what your culture is telling you? What does this culture tell you about, or voices in your life tell you about your relationships? How does our culture tell us to pursue relationships? Is it trustworthy? I would say that much of what the world is teaching us in all these areas is actually wicked. And if followed, will lead to entrapment, to destruction, to pain. The wicked lay a snare for us. Now, again, that doesn't mean it's intentional that those people are intentionally wicked or that those traps are intentionally traps. They're not. But nevertheless, they're dangerous for us. God's word protects us from those because the more that we're in listening to what God has to say here, the less likely we are to believe those lies, to follow the bad advice, to chase the values the goals, the purposes that our culture tells us are so, so, so important. So necessary even for you. Verse 111 is my favorite verse in this passage. It says, your testimonies are my heritage forever, for they are the joy of my heart. Listen, if you've been given God's word, if you have a Bible, or if anyone has spoken, communicated God's word to you, you've been given a heritage. You've been, it's been passed down to you, so to speak. Maybe it was someone in your family, a long line of family members perhaps, have given you God's word. So for you, you look at it very much as a heritage. I've inherited this. My mother recently showed me a, a grainy old black and white picture of a man and said, that's Antonio Pompeo. He's your great-grandfather. And he was the first Christian in my family, my mother said. He was the first man in our family to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and receive the gospel. And he taught your grandmother, she said, he started taking your grandmother to church, even though your great-grandmother didn't like it, but he started taking your grandmother to church. And she came to believe the gospel. And she raised my mom and her five siblings, and they all came to believe the gospel. Where do I stand in that? I'm just, I'm just one, more, one more generation that's received this heritage. Now my kids sit here as the next generation to receive that heritage. If you have received the gospel, it's been inherited. Maybe not by biological family. Maybe it's from a spiritual father or a spiritual brother has, has passed it down to you. But it's yours now. These testimonies, you've inherited them. They are yours to enjoy. But think about it this way. If you have trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ, these testimonies of what God has done and said over history... It's not just a story that you've inherited. It's actually your story. It's your heritage. 
It's when you're reading these stories in the scriptures, it's like you're reading the stories of. What we want to think about as we finish today is simply this. As we reevaluate and seek to recalibrate our relationship to God's word in this new year, how can we do that? And so I want to give you three uh, steps or three, three things that I want you to implement as you seek to um, engage God's word, as you seek to read it and benefit from it. Right? The first one is this. It's internalize. Well, there are three, and I'll just give you the three. Actually, I'll just list them. Internalize, respond, and prioritize. Internalize, respond, and prioritize. Okay? So what internalize is the first one. What I simply mean is this, that as you enter this new year, if you feel in any sense uh, a compelled, even by what we've talked about today, you're thinking about the fact that the, the Word of God is actually more precious than perhaps you've given it credit for being. Maybe you've been neglecting it. Maybe you've grown tired of it. You've lost a taste for it. And maybe what we've looked at today has helped to, to kindle up or, uh, or rekindle a, a desire to engage God's word. And here's the first thing I would encourage you to do as you read God's word. Seek to internalize it. That's the goal, to internalize. The goal is not to strike a line off on your task list and say, read the Bible today. The goal is to appropriate. It's to take in what God says to you so that it shapes the way you think and speak and act. And that only happens over time. Think about your relationship to God's word over the long haul. Because engaging God's word is all about the cumulative experience of exposure over time. It's not just about what did I get out of what I read this morning, or what did I get out of what I read tonight. It's about how is this changing me over time. And usually you can't even notice it happening, but it's having a shaping effect on you if, if the words are being internalized. And the only way for that to happen is through sustained exposure over time. Verse 11 of Psalm 119 is perhaps one of the most famous verses in this, in this, book, in this uh, chapter. It says, I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. And sometimes that verse is used to talk about scripture memorization. He's storing up God's word in his heart. That is, we say he's memorizing. But really, that verse is less about memorization. It's more about internalization. And I'm not dissing memorization at all. It, it, memorization is a tool and a useful tool because it helps us to internalize God's word, to absorb it, to take it in. Great. But in and of itself, it may be impressive, but so what? But it helps us internalize. That's the point. Memorization helps us internalize, but so can obedience too, doesn't it? The more we seek to obey God's word, doesn't it start to become more and more part of us? More natural to us, more instinctive. I remember hearing a pastor once say, what if you as a parent told your adolescent kids to clean their room once a week? And they came back a week, a week later, and they said, Dad, I still remember what you said. I totally memorized it. But they did not touch their room. And then the next week they came back and they said, Dad, I still got it. I still remember what you told us. Clean your room once a week. I got it. In fact, I can tell you how to say it in Hebrew. I know what the original words mean. 
but they still haven't cleaned the room. And so obviously they're not getting it. It's not being internalized. It's not being personalized. What's the goal after all? What's the dad's goal in that case? In the short term, we want to see a tidy room. But in the long term, as a parent, what I want to see is growth. I want to see my kids being shaped and growing to actually appreciate taking care of their environment and and stewarding well the space that God has given them so that they don't need to be reminded over time. It actually becomes a personally held conviction. That's the goal. Memorization in and of itself doesn't accomplish that. But it can be a tool in accomplishing that. Obviously, you need to remember they're going to do it. The goal is over time to value what God is telling us so that eventually it becomes more and more instinctive. God's wisdom starts to become our wisdom so that we start to look at things in the way that God would have us look at them through the filter of God's word. I don't expect that my kids, I'm not, I'm not, I'm no offense, I'm, because I, it just doesn't come instinctive for me either. None of us in, in my home, at least instinctively, clean up our room. It hasn't, we, we haven't been sanctified to that point yet. But I do believe, I do believe that the more we read God's word, the more instinctive obedience to him becomes, the more, the more it, it flows out from us. Isn't it true that virtues like generosity and forgiveness and patience and justice They start to become more instinctive over time the more we follow God and follow his word. It's exposure over time. So yes, memorization is good. Obedience is even better. Meditation is necessary. We need to linger over God's word. Praying. Returning to his word over and over and over again. Maybe it's a matter, and I suggest this for some of you. What if you were to pick a text of Scripture, a small text of Scripture, and keep returning to it all week? Keep reading it to yourself. As you pray, as you ask questions of it, that kind of lingering and meditating over a passage can take you beyond just a cursory understanding. I'll send out some some resources later this week that I hope will, will help us in that regard. But meditation largely does just require us to slow down and concentrate on God's word. That's what David is talking about here when he says, I've set my heart, I've inclined my heart. He's concentrating. He's saying, I'm leaning into your word. There's some questions you can ask as you read God's word slowly. What does this show me about God? What I've just read, what does it show me about God? What does it show me about me? And what does it show me about the world? And I I affirm to you confidently that you can open up to any passage in the scriptures, any place in the scriptures randomly, and read it and say, and ask those questions and come up with some kind of answer. What does this show me about God? What does it show me about me? What does it show me about the world? And if you can't come up with any answers, that's something to pray through. Those are questions you can then ask God. But secondly, we don't just want to internalize. We want to respond. want to respond. And that means saying, what do I now do now that God has shown me what he's just shown me? What do I do now that God has shown me this? And by responding, I don't just mean application, because oftentimes, at least in, 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 maybe it's just unique to Western evangelicalism, I don't know, but I know that many of us, we think in terms of, we read the Bible, I want to go apply it. How do I use this? 
How do I use it? I'm not talking about responding is not just using what you've just learned. It's simply responding to it. And that comes first, before we even try to apply it and use it. And what does that response look like? Maybe the response looks like confessing, sin, repenting. Maybe it looks like asking some questions. Maybe the response is to share what you just learned with someone else. Maybe the response is just to worship. There are many different ways to respond to God's word. One way to respond is then also to say, how am I going to apply this in my life? But that's not first. We respond. There are many ways to respond to God's word. Here's one we just talked about a second ago. Obedience. Verse 112 says, I incline my heart to perform your statutes forever to the end. I will not stray from your precepts, he says in verse 110. Committing ourselves to God's word. That's another way to respond. That's what he says in verse 106. I've sworn an oath and confirmed it. He's saying, I'm not going to turn back from your word. No matter what. He responds with humility and teachability in verse 108. He says, accept my free will offering, O Lord, and teach me your rules. You know what he's saying there? That's free will offering, in part at least, was an offering of thanksgiving. He's saying, Lord, I've received your word. Thank you. More, please? Can I have, thank you. Can I have more? So here's how we engage God's word, hopefully in this new year. I want to invite and challenge us to as a church to internalize, to respond, and lastly, to prioritize God's word. Prioritize it. If everything we've said is true, if Psalm 119 is true, should God's word hold a more prominent place in your, in your life? Should it be prioritized more in your days? So I want to make a recommendation, and I want, to, I want, to, I want you to, to know that this is not a command from God. I've said, I think I've said many times from up here that I, I want to be very careful to not press upon you and on your conscience things that God, um, in, a, in, a, in, a, in an authoritative way, that God has not said. So I think that God, I know that God wants us to read his word, to internalize it, and to respond to it. God says so. He also wants us to prioritize it. He says so. I'm just giving you one way to prioritize his word, and this has not come from the scriptures, but I think there's wisdom in it. And it's simple. I want to recommend to you Bible before devices. Bible before devices. As you wake up in the morning, Bible before devices. BBD. If you grew up listening to 90s R&B, that's easy for you to remember. BBD. Whatever your morning routine might be, make a point of picking up the scriptures before you begin checking notifications, scrolling through email. Now, as you hear that, maybe like legalism alarms start going off in your head. Like, wait a second, you're laying like pharisaical rules down on us. And I could see why. That's understandable response. I'm not saying it's sinful to look at your phone before you read God's word. I'm not saying that you're more holy if you look at God's word before your devices. I'm simply recommending this practice to you as wise, in part because we all know, and I think we're increasingly finding out about this, that your phones, the devices you hold in your hand, and the apps on that, that device are designed specifically to get your attention and to not let go. It's no coincidence they are designed and being perfected and tweaked to achieve maximum enslavement. <laughs> 
So put it negatively, maximum engagement perhaps would be the more positive way to look at it. Like a small child that keeps saying, hey, look at me, hey, look at me, hey, look at me, and you can't turn away. That's what your device is like. You know how it works. You know how time slips away quickly. And so based on that alone, we should consider the possibility that grabbing this device and diving into that before we've listened to what God has to say to us is not a good move. Here's another reason, last reason, why. We are all surrounded by voices that tell us about what matters in life. We're surrounded by voices that tell us about ourselves, about the world. We've got, you've got your multiple news feeds. You've got an employer telling you about your life. You've got colleagues. You've got YouTube. You've got your favorite Netflix series. You've got podcasts. You've got lots of voices coming at you telling you what matters in life, who you are, and what's important. And all of these messages are communicating to you constantly. And many of these messages are lies. And even the ones that aren't lies, they're given so much focus, so much attention, that they are treated in a way that they don't deserve to be treated. In other words, they're given priority in our minds that they don't deserve. And all of this skews our thinking. It warps our values. And so you and I need to be reminded every day of who God is. Who does he say we are? What does he say matters? And I would argue that we need to hear his voice before we listen to anything else. So that whatever else we listen to gets filtered through what he has already said to us that day. So given what we know about ourselves and given what we know about technology, think about it. Isn't it wiser to let our devices sleep for a while after we wake up so that we can awaken to God's words rather than those other voices vying for our attention? Isn't it better to let our Father speak to us before we check in to see what everyone else has to say to us? So the questions we're leaving you with are, us with are what we started with. How have you been relating to God's word in this past year? And how will you relate to God's word in this next year? What place will it have in your life? We will face challenges, no doubt. God's word is able to guide us and shape us if we incline our hearts toward it. If we don't incline our hearts toward it, there is a price to be paid. Whether it's through increased fear, anxiety, Anger, misplaced priorities, ambitions, unwise ambitions, conflicts. If we neglect the light of God's word. Of course, none of us has valued God's word the way we should. David didn't either. But that's why we return to the main point of this book. Jesus Christ himself. The only one who valued God's word perfectly and consistently. And yet he died to fulfill this word. And more than that, he died to pay for our failure to love this word. And in him, we see the perfect revelation of God's wisdom, righteousness, and steadfast love. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We ask that you would help us to live in such a way that we exhibit a gratitude for it that is increasing, and we exhibit uh, character traits that are increasingly shaped by it. In Jesus' name, amen.